And at first it was a 500 bucks, then it was a thousand, then it was 10, then it was 500. And so by 22, I'm a multi-millionaire, liquid multi-millionaire. Anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have the money. You don't have to have the contact. You just have to have the concept. All right. This episode of The Wealthy Way, I have got a guy who's done over $1.2 billion in mergers and acquisitions just last year, I think. Sure. This guy has a lot of other things going on, a pure hustler at heart with uh, CEO shadow consulting and uh, a whole bunch of other things. He's telling me about all this other stuff that I can't even say on camera, but man, I got Derek Fay in the house. What's up, man? Hey, good to meet you finally. Yeah, dude. Pleasure. So, bro, I just yeah. asked you before the show, but I'll just let you say it live. Like, what do you do? <laughs> That's a, And by the way, isn't it funny? That's like the hardest question for me to answer. I was like, ah. So at heart, I'm a hustler and entrepreneur, right? Uh, but more, more kind of into the weeds. Uh, I am one of the larger VC firms uh, in the U.S. I've uh, owned that for about 20 years, 100% sole equity owner. And what's it called? 3F Management. 3F yeah, Management. 3F cool. Management. And we're non-traditional in the sense that typical VC firms only invest in startups or active companies where we do dirt to exit as well. Meaning we build- So you'll start a company. We started many companies. Wow. Um, and so over the years we've exited, built and exited over 30 companies, uh, various sizes, seven, eight, nine, not quite 10 figures on any one deal yet, uh, but really meaningful companies. And we also invest in startups. We invest in promising young entrepreneurs, promising companies. Uh, we're all over the map. Um, we've owned or own assets in just about every niche you can in the business world um, because I'm a cash flow guy. I'm a person guy. I don't really care what your business is. I care more about the person operating it and the potential that I see. Right. Yeah. So what's your current buy box look like today? Like, what are you looking for? Great question. And one of the reasons I'm doing these podcasts, right? Because I, I recognize something, and I think Hermosi said it the best, uh, attention is the new currency. Mm -hmm. And so we've always had a really great deal flow. Um, but once we started doing this and me, so, you know, kind of out from behind the shadows, we've seen a really uh, int interesting deal flow that I don't think we would have otherwise. But to answer the question, I have no specific ask on companies, as I said. Um, I don't care. I've owned plumbing companies. I've owned fintech companies. I've owned, you know, QSRs. So again, it comes to the operator the concept and the potential. Mm. And everyone really can't get their mind around it. Well, I don't understand. How could you? And here's the thing. I don't consider myself an expert at a ton of stuff, but I'm lethal at a lot of things. So I'm really good at coming into a company, identifying what's needed, what's missing, and really escalating that growth trajectory and exiting in a really exciting uh, trajectory, uh, exit value in a time period of one to three years versus the traditional five, seven to 10. Mm. So we're getting into M&A for the first time ever this year. Mm -hmm. um, I've started every company I own from scratch. Um, now we're, we're building funds to start buying companies. Oh. Obviously, I'm going to be starting to, you know, I'm always starting companies, but see that. I've bootstrapped them all. So I've never raised capital. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to allow people to invest with me for the first time in Smart. some of these deals. So I'm very curious to see, I guess I'm going to turn this into my own con consulting call from yeah. you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I'm curious, what are what are the big things you see as problems and and things that people need to, I, I guess, work on? Because you talked about being able to go walk into a business, say, hey, these are the issues, you know, let's fix them so we can exit in one to three years. What are typical issues? I mean, let's start at the top, right? I mean, I think typically the, the first hurdle or first tackle is the founder or the CEO in place. Um, a lot of times these companies will reach out specifically for assistance and or help. And then when you sit down for the first meeting and ask, what is the issue? There's no issue. <laughs> so mm. that's an interesting kind of uh, Yeah, how start. do you not know what your problems well, are? Well, then, then why am I here? Well, yeah, not yeah. even that. There are no problems. Yeah. And so 
once you hear that, you immediately know what that problem is, which is it's the founder and or the CEO. So yeah. it's a really quick path to, to success yeah, he, there, he, right? He's not very um, self-observant. That's right. And so one of two things has to happen then. Either that founder or CEO has to step aside and allow someone else to come in, or they have to really be able to buy into what I preach. And I believe this wholeheartedly as cliche as it may seem, if actually implemented, it changes the structure and the foundation of your company forever, which is give a shit about your employees. Hmm. And not just say that you care about your employees. I mean, be able to have someone go to your employees and ask, what do you think of your founder and CEO? Hmm. Does he actually care? You may think, I may think that we do, but when you get the, the generic feedback from your people and you find out that they don't, I've done that. And then you go back to that founder and you present that information. And if they're resistant to it, again, you know what the problem is. If they're accepting to it, like, oh my God, I, I had no idea that's what it was. How can I fix it? Yeah. So for me, as a CEO, as a founder, same as you, I take wholehearted responsibility for all of my success and all of my failures and shortcomings. And so for me, that's where you have to start because everything trickles down. Right, right. So obviously, inwardly reflecting, I've thought about this too because- for me, um, I've been able to make, you know, most of my companies pretty successful or, you know, have the awareness to shut them down if they're not and, you know, say, hey, you know what, this one's just not the way we thought it would be. Let's move on to right. whatever else. Which right? is an amazing ability, by the way. Most people do not have that ability. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm always just looking at opportunities where I'm like, That's oh, right. this is an opportunity. That's an opportunity. Like, I think we could do that. That goes with this. Yep. Um, but so one thing I'm thinking is, as we go into this new space, there's going to be deals where, like you're saying, from dirt to exit, mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to be taking some company that doesn't exist and I have to go run it and do everything. That's a very different deal than what you would consider normal venture capital, Absolutely, which is like, hey, I'm going to give you money and I'm going to keep tabs on you. Right. But like, so how do you handle both of those situations? Yeah, well, I guess the answer is, to me, I enjoy both. I think that's where you have to start, right? And so there's not much difference the way I operate on either scenario. I still, and my team, whether we're starting from dirt to exit or we're coming in where you're already an EBITDA positive company, mm -hmm. we are still in operational, I use the word loosely, but control until a time that we think that the founder or CEO and company can be a little bit more restrained and on their own. And so this is something we talk about all the time. Everyone thinks they want 51% of the company because that gives them control. That is not the case. I can have 1% of your company and have operational control through the operating agreement. Right. And people are so tight to hold on to their equity. We're really, it's just the value of that equity, right? Right. So for me, it's it, like I said, there's no difference between the, the, the two as far as operational control and, and what we're doing. Well, I think the biggest thing I think about is time. Yes. Because I only have so many hours in the day to truly put my own brain power towards a company mm -hmm. versus, you know, we evaluate this company. We think it looks good. We're going to obviously put consulting behind them and, you know, check in with them kind of like board meetings, but yep. we're not running them on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I mean, that can get slippery. It can work really well with some, but some will fall through the cracks. And I say that because I've done it. Yeah. Right. And so I built out a team where, uh, okay, so let's say I've got my restaurant portfolio. I have my restaurant portfolio COO. He's the top guy. He builds his C-suite team downline. And then when we have a new asset, they come in, they evaluate, they put all the policies and procedures in place. And then they have, for the first 90 to 120 days, they are boots on the ground getting them 3F management run. And then they slowly pull back and check in, pull back. And every time you pull back, you can pull back farther. So there's always the onboarding period. Always. 
has to be. Absolutely has to be. And then from my position and your position, we're providing, in my opinion, me anyway, I'm providing the overall vision. Here's what I see. Here's why I'm investing in this company. Here's where I want it to go. Here's the pro forma. Check back in monthly. I probably meet with individual assets quarterly, personally, just to let them know that I'm still here and I give a shit, right? Um, But again, I train my people. They are a reflection of me. And that's not something I I take that very seriously. Mm. So what are the niches? You said you have restaurant. Mm Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, restaurant, fintech, fitness, um, e-com, a little bit of everything, honestly. And it, not to say I have all of them now, but over the past 20 years, we've been in and around almost every one, except for casinos, the only one. <laughs> now, now I'm coming here twice a month. I'm trying to find a space there too. What, what do you think is your favorite industry and why? Man, my love, I have to say this, was fitness. Fitness. Yeah. yeah. You're a fitness so, guy. So I, yeah, I played baseball, not at your oh, level, okay. but I played baseball my whole life. What position? Uh, third base. Nice. Yep. You look like a third baseman. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Stocky. That's it, man. Power. Yeah. Not afraid of the ball. Yep. Go with instincts over thought most of the time. Yep. I actually built uh, out of spite. We'll get back to why I say out of spite. One of the largest independently owned fitness companies in the state of Florida and what sold that in 2019, Around the Clock Fitness. Around the Clock Fitness. Yeah, Around the Clock Fitness. So it's just like a chain of... No, it's my brand, Dirt to Exit again. Uh, and so it was actually very large. So let's say a little larger than LA Fitness. So 40 to 70,000 square foot facilities. Very high end, country club feel, towel service, whole deal. And so- it Sounds like lifetime out here. Yes, not as big, but similar concept. Yeah. Started that back in 2004 out of spite. So quick story. I was a fledgling uh, venture capitalist on a great run. Hadn't lost money. Hadn't lost money, which, by the way, is very rare in VC world. You have losses. Well, aren't you going to – I thought in VC world you're going to, like, be one out of 20. Yeah, everyone says that. And I think a traditional VC firm where you're just writing checks, Yeah, absolutely. I am not that guy. I am involved. Um, And so that hedges it down a little bit better. And my expectations are through the roof. Um, but so anyway, I took my first loss in the VC world, $1.8 million. And it was a, an organic grocery store with a small fitness center. Okay. So I tried to get the money back. They just took the money um, and spent about six months in court. It wasn't going to happen. So I went back and said, listen, I'm going to relieve 400000 of the debt. I'm going to write off the other. And I took, I don't know, maybe $100,000 worth of fitness equipment in this small membership base and built the first around-the-clock fitness across the street, purely out of spite. Didn't <laughs> want to own a fitness center. The thing blew up. Had one for five years, 12,000 members, built five more over the next two years, and exited about $52.2 million to one of the largest uh, fitness companies in the world. And what year did you exit? 2019. Okay. So you yeah. ran that for 15 years? Uh, so, yeah. No, 2006. So 13 years. 13 years. 13 years. It was the only asset I've held that long. And I had a, such a, a, a sense of pride. I was young when I did that. I yeah. mean, I'm 20, I was 24 when I started. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, funny story. So I sold it to um, Town Sports International, Boston Sports Club, New York Sports Club, all that. So COVID hit three months after I sold. Three months. Did they want you to buy it back? Uh, Actually, they went bankrupt. Mm. So I took back the assets at a zero cost, restabilized, and sold them again six months ago. Mm. Lower exit, of course, right? but 100% margin. Yeah. So was it like a seller finance deal on the first deal? And then- All cash transaction. Mm. So how'd you take them back? So when they went bankrupt, they went to the landlords and said, listen, we need six months, no rent to figure stuff out. And the landlord said, fuck off. We're not doing it. Mm. So then when I found that out and they closed all of the clubs, a lot of my employees were still there. It wasn't that much longer. So they reached out to me, went back to the landlords and said, listen, you know me. I can operate. I can pay. They 
said, let's go. And they gave me back the keys. I had to rebrand, of course. Okay. All, so I closed, they stayed closer about three months, rebrand, new paint, new sign, all the deal, uh, and then opened up Stabilize and Soul. So it's called Stabilized and so. Oh, no. You, no, no. Yeah. I, I stabilized yeah, yeah. The, the business. What was the new and, name? Uh, nonstop Fitness. Very close. <laughs> <laughs> so people are like, is this the same? And you're like, it might be. Well, they know they knew. They knew me, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's funny. What What made you get into the VC world? I mean, you said you started this when you are 24. Like, how yeah. do you even do that? Yeah. So I, let's go back to my upbringing because it's important in the, in the whole story. So I was born in Rhode Island. Single mom, Section 8 housing, welfare, poverty. My biggest concern in life as a six-year-old kid was if we were going to eat. Right. And what that does, I don't say that because I'm not a victim. I wear that as a badge of honor. It changes your mindset in the day-to-day life, how you look at things. So I'm thinking about how do I... How do I find an angle to find a way to get food for my family or make money? So I started really, really early. Um, and so by the age of, say, 14 or 15, I called myself an intermediary venture capitalist, which is not a thing. Well, also, <laughs> I don't know of any 15-year-olds back then that wanted to be a venture capitalist. Or, knew even, what, or even knew what it was. Yeah, like that, that, even that's knew not even gotten popular until tech. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. So what I would do, and at 15, I did do a deal, and that's what really put the light bulb on. So I'm working out at a small gym, hole in the wall, hole in the wall gym. Um, I remember the guy's name, Donnie Smith, comes and says, hey, we're closing down the gym. To me, worst thing in the world. That's kind of what I did. I've always worked out. And so he said he couldn't pay rent. So at the time, I knew a guy that I thought was the richest man in the world. He owned a BMW. thought it was the richest thing I've ever seen in my life. So I went directly to him <laughs> and said, hey, they're closing down the gym because uh, they can't pay rent. And he said, well, I'll, it was like $2,000. So I'll give him six months rent. So I went back to the gym owner and told him, and he said, are you, are you serious? He said, you will never pay a gym membership again. You can have anything at the juice bar you want for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, the, and the light bulb went off. I said, so if I can find people that have money and pair them with people that don't and that I can pull out for me. And so I started to do it. And at first it was a 500 bucks. Then it was a thousand. Then it was 10. Then it was 500. So it's scaled. So by 22, I'm a multimillionaire, liquid multimillionaire. Really? And I'm the VC. So now I start doing deals. So like, what was your big deals back then? Like, how did, how did you become a multimillionaire at 22? That's insane. It is insane. Um, so the path to it is, as I said, but then my first big deal, it's a real estate deal if you want to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. Uh, okay, so um, 22 years old, uh, just moved to Florida. And as I've always, I'm a computer, I'm a communicator, right? I talk to every human being I meet, like in the elevator, everyone's so quiet. It drives me crazy. I'm, I just start talking to people. I, <laughs> I love it. I've built, I built a career on talking to people. People understood how easy it was to make connections. Uh, anyway, so I'm in Naples. I'm, I'm out meeting people. I meet two top realtors in Naples. I work for a large, large company at the time, largest in the world. And they take me out to lunch. So on the way, they get a phone call and they say, Derek, do you mind if we stop? Of course not. So I'm an opportunity guy. What, yeah, yeah. What's going on? Yeah. So we stop and it's a huge uh, apartment complex, low income, 305, 315 units. And what they're doing is they're preparing to renovate these and turn them into condos. Mm. And so they're saying, so there's like 10 realtors there. How many do you want? How many do you want? Can you sell? Can you do this? And there's 150,000 upside per unit. Mm. So they leave. We're in the car. I talk to my, my realtor friends. They have no interest in it because they're selling $5 million homes. They're like, I, I, it was a waste of our time to even. So what I do is a little research. 
and find out that there's first right of refusal and they have an option to buy their unit at fair market existing value. An older owner put this option in for all of these people to buy these things and this new big real estate company came in and bought it and they're stuck with this bag unless they can get them to get out of their term and then they've got it. So I draft letters, okay? I spend $70 to draft letters to all of the tenants. I get back over 200 people saying, I'll assign you my rights. And mm -hmm. in the letter, I'm offering them $1,000 to relocate. <laughs> You're doing wholesaling back then. That's right. Yeah. So landlord calls me freaking out, not landlord, owner, real estate company, freaking out. Little back and forth, of course. Now, here's the truth. I was playing a poker game. I wasn't going to be able to close or pay. No. I was not going to be able to close. But, but they were so afraid of losing the 150 times 315. They asked me what I wanted. And I asked for 20 grand per, and I made $5 million <laughs> off of $70 in a courier service. No shit. What year was this? 2002. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And so that opened my eyes to wholesaling wait, wait. and arbitraging real estate. How, how did you um, find that deal? What, so what the, was the story again? So, <laughs> like, yeah. So no, I was in the car with these realtors. Yeah. And they got a phone call because they were the two top realtors. They brought them in to see if they had buyers. But uh, my guys were like, we sell $5 million homes. We don't give got a shit. It. But I'm looking like, And okay, how did you learn about the option? Did some research. Oh, you did research. Did some research. That's it. And That's then I, and I sent the letter and one person sent me back the lease. And I saw, not only, so now I don't have, a, it's an option on the rent. I have an option to buy the unit at fair market value. And what was fair market? $70,000. Mm. And so in my letter, I said, you may not know this, but you have an opportunity to be in a really great position. I highly recommend you take it. If you do not want to, I will take it and give you $1,000 to relocate wherever you want to relocate. Mm. And some people did it and about over 200 people didn't. Right. Just assigned it to me. And, like, I, didn't oh, to, and I didn't have free, to pay, and I didn't have to pay the $1,000 either. The, right. land, the, the owner did. Yep. And after that, that real estate company was so impressed by my play at 22 years old, we've done like four or five deals since. Wow. Uh-huh. That's crazy. It was a good one. So that was my first big kind of experience in real estate. And now I arbitrage real estate all the time. And I just did a great deal. I know you're a real estate guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to hear one more? It's pretty- Yeah, of course. Um, so pocket listings, right? Okay. And so I, I kind of target larger- similar things at like 40, 40 to say 400 units. And so my guys come to me with pocket listings. They utilize my, uh, my net worth. Yep. So last one I did about three months ago, uh, 41 units or sorry, 42 units. I put $150,000 soft. So I have my time to do diligence 60 yep. days. Um, so now I have control over that property. Yep. So they were asking 14 million. I got them down to 10.8 million. And then I found a buyer inside of my due diligence period for 13, or sorry, for 14 million. So I pulled 3.2 million out, got my 150 back yeah. in 25 days. It's crazy. And, and, and this is the thing. People hear this stuff and they think it's so outside the realm of possibility. Anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have the money. You don't have to have the contact. You just have to have the concept because you can find a me, you can find a Ryan, and then you can work the deal. Now, you may not get the whole 3.2 if that's the structure, but you're getting real meaningful money. Mm -hmm. Deal structure, seeing angles is everything. Everything. So what do you like better? Buying real estate and doing you know all the things you can do with real estate or buying businesses? It's transactional for me. What I love is the deal. I love negotiating. I love seeing, I love seeing the chessboard, making the plays, Making creative, if it's a straight line deal, I'm very disinterested in it. 
Like I, I really like to get outside the lines and find a way um, to optimize. And honestly, not just for me. I'm often really good at finding ways for everybody to win in a deal. And what that does is it changes it from one transaction to multiple transactions with the same people. Even in situations like that first one where someone will listen to that and go, oh, you screwed over that big fund. Well, not really. I outthought them. They still made way more money than me. And they were so impressed. They've come back to me yeah. now many times. Right. Like, hey, we're looking at acquiring this. We can't quite see the best way. And I've come in and they've paid me real money to help. Yeah, I've seen um, a lot of funds do that for these aggregators of mm -hmm. land and everything else. They're like, hey, just go get the land all together, get options on them That's right. with these owners, and then we'll buy from you. Absolutely. And we just had a storm, a big, big, big storm in Florida. We got wiped out at my house as well. Um, but what's happening now, these houses are gone. They're $2 million lots on the beach. They're reaching out to me to buy. And I say, well, listen, instead of buying, you pledge the land. I'll build the house. Mm -hmm. We use the pledge of the land. So there's it's collateral. There you go. So we got the debt at almost 100%. And then we we split the profits. Yep. So again, it comes back to just getting outside that box. Get outside the box doesn't mean getting outside the lines. It just means open your eyes and, and look around. There's so many ways to do things. Um, so do you mainly just look for big real estate deals at this point? No, not necessarily. Uh, a lot of the stuff comes to me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, am I doing flips? Not necessarily, but I'll do a flip if I, if I know I can make, you know, 70 to $100,000. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Right. And a lot of times I'll do that with younger guys who are like, hey, you know, I, I'm only going to make 30K on this. Would you mind helping me? So I, I come in, I help. In some cases, I don't even take stuff. Like I've gotten to a point in my life where Money's always important. I'm like, let's not pretend that it isn't. But I take as much satisfaction in helping young guys bridge that success gap because right. no one was there for me. I was an entrepreneur. When entre nobody knew what that word was. Mm. And, and when I explained it, my family, my friends, everyone told me I was insane. <laughs> I was going to be a failure and I needed to get a job. Right. Right. So now today, you know, I want to get back to the business side because yeah. that's what I'm focused on. But today, I mean, you guys do venture capital, like mm -hmm. you said. What? Are you guys raising capital? Are you still just using your own money? Like what's the what's the mix look like? Yeah. So from 22 until maybe a couple of years ago, it was 100% either my money or money that I went out and found and partnered. So I need $5 million for a deal. I've got control of an asset. They can bring in their $5 million. I'll give them a piece of equity. That's always how I've kind of done it. Um, I've Like you, I'm considering opening up a fund where people can invest in almost like tokenizing businesses, which I haven't seen done like they do with real estate, Right. Um, where you can buy percentage of the business that we own. Yep. And I think that's a really interesting concept that we're pursuing right now. Mm. Yeah. So with these typical deal structures, let's just say this guy's going to put 5 million with you. What's a typical structure look like between you and him? Um, I mean, it's case specific, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, okay. So let's break it down. Let's say I own a company that I've acquired it and I think it's worth $10 million. He's bringing in $5 million. No, he's just bringing in money. And I say just because it is a big, it is just because the operating of it is far more difficult than putting in the money. Yeah. And so for, for say five, $5 million and a temperate 10 million asset, you probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25%. Okay. But the ROI in that is still unbelievable. Yeah. And you're, you're the one operating and that's right. doing everything. That's right. And yeah. for them, that's almost better than their traditional VC deal that they would find. Because yeah. they've got a demonstrated operator. And I have funds now, which is something we could talk about offline, three or four of them, where they fund any project that I do 100%. So for example, let's say we have a franchise, we want to open up 30 locations. Um, and it costs $3 million, nuts the bolt. Buy the land, build the building, put up the sign, put everything inside. I mean, here are the keys, guys. Operate. 
and let's say that's $100 million. They will give me $100 million so long as I'm the operator. I get 20% of the building in the land when they sell it, and I retain 100% of the business forever. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so what are they getting out of the deal? They are tip, these, these guys are just real estate uh, developers. And so all they want is a strong operator with a, with, with a trajectory, his, I'm sorry, a history of success because that drives up their value of the building. And so they put in 3 million for a building, 18 months later, they sell for 4.5 or 5 million. They give me 20% of the upside. They're thrilled. Let's do it 30 more times. Yeah. And I have and zero you're, you're cost to build the business. Bu- yeah. You're going to lease that building in your there business. There it is. That's right. Okay. I get that. So yeah, that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot with um, all these deals we're going to do because, you know, on one hand, right, um, with traditional real estate funds, it's the opposite. You know, it's usually 70-30, 80-20 in favor of the investor. Um, In venture capital, in a lot of these funds, I don't know how they've structured some. I would assume many are the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, when I'm the one actually being the operator of a business, I'm definitely not doing that. <laughs> you know, yeah, like agreed. It's way too much work. It is it is a ton of work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's not under understate that. Yeah. 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 A real estate fund's a little different story when, you know, you're buying an asset and, you know, you got property management and you know, it's not it's not the craziest thing like no. running a business. But there is value in identifying a property that's meaningful and actually will perform. Oh, a thousand percent. Yes. Right. And there's Finding value in that. Thousand percent. Yeah. I was just thinking like this, th- my big dilemma was, okay, with traditional syndication, if people are expecting to own 70%, mm-hmm. you know, that's just not going to happen. It is not. I wouldn't play in that pond. Yeah. But then even with like venture capital in general, right? I guess when you're talking about founders and, you know, they go pitch themselves on Shark Tank yeah. or whatever, right? It's like, yeah, they're they're only giving up a small piece of their business and mm-hmm trying to get liquidity to go grow it and whatever. Right. I mean, Shark Tech's not really a fair representation about how that really would go. Right. Um, I love the show. Yeah. I love all the players, um, but I'm not sure what happens offline at the end of the day, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah, it's hard to say what the deals really end up becoming. I mean, listen, I would take, and I assume you would too, Mark Cuban as a partner with no capital and give equity, yes? Yes. Okay. So there's something askew there, and it's not the reality of the situation. Um. But, and by the way, we do that all the time and I'm sure you do too, or if mm-hmm. not, I highly Consulting recommend for you. equity, yep. And not even that. I mean, we take 50% and sometimes more of meaningful EBITDA positive companies for zero investment yeah. because of what we bring to the table. Yeah. And that's what we talked about a little bit before. Owners are so locked in and holding that equity like it's everything versus if you're making $5 million a year and I can bring you to $20 million a year at 50% versus 100, which is better? Yeah. So it's a really, but so many, so many people have, that's such a hurdle for them to get over. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you pitch that? Right. Like, cause you know, you're seeing a lot of consulting for equity plays and I'm going to be doing that too. Um, I I've already had many, many opportunities over the years, but I just haven't done it up until this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I know Hormozzi's doing that, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I know that, um, lots of people have been doing it over the years. I, I had a call with Roland Frazier last week and, yeah. and he's coming on the podcast and, that's what he's doing. and Solid, solid business mind, by the way. Yeah. Rolling. Extremely smart. Yeah. And, you know, I've been thinking about that. I'm like, okay, you know, we're going to get all of these deals, maybe, you know, essentially for free, right? Yes. Sweat equity. Yep. And maybe I'll sell my position to investors yep. um, as part of these deals. Beautiful structure. Have you, So you've done those types of deals? Beautiful structure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So what is there to know about the consulting for equity game? What are the ins and outs? On both sides, for me as the operator and for investors, if 
you know, I sell that out. Yeah. I mean, if, so for, for me, I live in the numbers, right? You talked about how do we, how do we pitch that? Um, and I think that's a really important place to, that's the beginning, middle and end. You know, I'm a numbers guy in the sense that, for example, you've got multiple companies and I, and I mean this, and we could even do it offline. If you show me your balance sheet and PL, I can tell you things about your company that you don't even know. And I say that with yeah. like really, I'm very, very sure because they do it. And so you need to, you need to demonstrate what the actual value of that person's company is versus what they think it is. Cause right. it's always a disparity. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, oh, I mean, a great disparity. You have to, you have to be tactful. And that's why I think numbers are the best way to do it versus emotions and words. Right. Uh, no one wants to hear, Hey, your company's just not worth what it is. But when you, <laughs> but when you break out the numbers and you show them, and then you talk about compounded annual growth rate and all of these types of things, um, it's, it's a great warmer, right? It gets, you're demonstrating your, your expertise yep. and you're showing them really why it's not worth what they think. Uh, and then you demonstrate your history. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm going to do. You've got the reach. You've got the experience. You've got years of success. Um, and, and I think uh, that really is a game changer. Yeah. Um, I think that that's typically my approach. Um, and for me and for you, these people are coming to us because they already know that there's value there. It's just a soft kind of soft transition into it. Mm -hmm. Um, now when you say on the other side, what do you mean? I guess for investors, right? So, I mean, for most investors, mm -hmm. they're just going to be looking at it as an LP and they're just going to be, That's it. you know, looking at IRRs mm -hmm. and all that. So I guess what I'm thinking about too, is with these businesses, um, you got to somehow cash the investor out mm -hmm. at, at, at a certain period. You said most VCs are five, seven years. Mm -hmm. You're, you're looking one to three one years. To three. You know, how are you exiting so quickly? Like, you know, what are you going in there? Like as a typical benchmark, you know, I guess the stages of exits and all that. Yeah. It, it's, it's so unique in every case. I would just say the reason we're able to exit so quickly is my approach to selling before we're ready to sell. Okay. Right. You sell the sizzle, man. I mean, <laughs> it, no, it's true. Right? You sell the growth. You, yeah. You sell. Future I mean, growth. And, and when you choose to sell is everything too. I am a, I am an expert at selling when things seem like they're the best, and they probably are. So when you're going like this, that's when you sell because you sell what's left. You sell what's next, and that's how you get exit multiples higher than anybody else. You don't sell when you plateau. You certainly don't sell when you dip. So it's so, it's so counterintuitive to actually when you should sell because everyone's excited. We're making more money than we have. We grew 20% year over year. That's when you sell. Yeah. That's when you sell. And then, you know, a lot of people don't understand too. Listen, if we have 10 coffee shops, let's say, and we've got leases on seven more, we, we can sell all of them. So we're going to get true value on our 10 and then we can get probably 50, 60% on the ones that don't even exist. Mm. So if you're ready to go, that's another play that you put into place. You can sell the future and people don't get that. And so there's just, there's so many, and I hate the word tactics, but so many strategies to really optimizing. And I believe this and I know I've sold every company I've sold, I've sold it for more than it is worth for sure. Mm. How'd you do that? Timing. Just selling the future. Selling the future. Which is not, it's not an, un, it is a reality so far as, right? So mm -hmm. far as this happens. And now it's not my responsibility. I've teed it up for you and you are going to pay for that tee up. But if you execute it next to you, that is on you. Right. Right. That makes sense. So you're getting paid for something that hasn't happened yet, but. All indicators. Everybody thinks it's going to happen. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And Brad and I were just talking about this recently with, um, with uh, Lightspeed. I mean, he's talking about bringing on sales guys, not to say he's ready to sell or not ready to sell, but we had this conversation where he's got great trajectory, compounded annual growth rate, 
every year for the past 20 years has seen a nice uptick. And now he's bringing on sales guy. Pause. If he were going to sell, he could literally project out the new value that these 15 sales guys would bring because he's never had them before. And he could sell Lightspeed for the EBITDA that he has and for probably 30 to 50% of the projections of these new sales guys without even having to test whether it works. He's saying, when you say sales guys, you're not talking about hiring like an M&A firm. You're talking like legit just sales guys that's to correct. go pitch the company. That's 100% right. Okay. And so that's just, that's, a, that's an example of what you can do when you're ready to sell. Yeah. Just show them the new plan in place. and Yeah. You sell the sizzle and you have to leave meat on the bone. Now you can sell a company if you don't, but if you want to optimize that sale, those are some really good tactics. And when I'm ready to sell a company, I've, I pick my buyers. My buyers don't pick me. Mm. And that's important, right? Every once in a while, someone will come in and write you a check, but it doesn't happen that way very often. I pick the buyers and then I start pitching them six months, sometimes a year before I'm ready to sell. Hey, here's the information on my company. Here's my OM. Here's my quality of earnings. And they come back with an line. I said, well, no, I'm not ready to sell yet. I just wanted to let you know that in time I will be. And the power of that, especially with these guys that have to spend money, yeah, you get a second offer. Mm. So... How are you seeing the market right now? I've heard that it's pretty rough. Isn't it everywhere? Yeah. Right? Uh, listen, it's it's rougher than it was a couple of years ago, that's for sure. But a couple of years ago wasn't reality. Right. And I don't think today's reality either, right? You've got ups and downs. You think there's an overcorrection? Of course. Yeah. I mean, so I sold about 85% of my holdings in 3F management um, about a year, a year ago. Why? Not because I knew this was coming or that was coming. I don't have a crystal ball. What I did know, money was cheap. Everybody was acting like they were rich. <laughs> and so that was the time to sell. And I also knew whenever everyone's acting like they're rich, eventually, whether it's one year or three years, everyone's going to be feeling like they're poor. And so when that happens, I've got a stockpile of cash to buy assets at the bottom. Mm. It's all cyclical, right? It's just a circle round and round. Right, right. So, I mean, what's next? I mean, you guys said you did $1.2 last year? In mergers. So that's just from companies you acquired? No, uh, actually, uh, I smile because I'm actually proud of this. So uh, not that at all. Um, so what I do is I recognize, as you would, in any industry, there's a conglomerate. Whether it's Apple, that's the biggest of the big. But in any even subsection, there's a big guy. Let's, let's break it down super simple. Joe's Plumbing. He owns the world in, in say, Naples, Florida. Right. But there's also three or four other plumbing companies that are doing maybe one fifth of what Joe's plumbing is doing, right? Mm -hmm. But they're really good at one thing. So what I do is I identify a conglomerate. I get the four to six subcategories who are not nearly and cannot compete with that conglomerate. I merge them together. I, I trade best practices. And now what I've done is I've put together a company under an umbrella yep. that can shared resources, shared buying power. Yeah. We have we have a scale. And now one of two things happens. We either take market share from the conglomerate or more often that conglomerate goes, you know what? I'm just going to acquire you. Hmm. And so that's what we've done 1.2 billion in the past fiscal year. So is the 1.2 billion in revenue from all those companies? Like what is the 1.2 billion? Yeah, 1.2 billion is actually combined value. Oh, of value all of all the companies that's brought correct. together. That's right. So, and I've seen a lot of companies do this. And I actually thought about doing it with my tax company hmm. because, um, you know, we're growing. We've, we've been in business three years this year. You know, we're going to, we should double. We've basically doubled or tripled every year. Mm -hmm. And that should continue this year at least. Sure. And, um, you know, I started to think like, okay, 
you know, maybe one day we'll sell this, maybe whatever. And it's like, if we're going to sell it, why don't we just go and merge with all mm-hmm. these other guys and go get a big multiple? That's right. And you can buy them or you can just bring them in under your umbrella. Right. And just generically, your the value of what you own goes up by a tick or two. Yep. Because you get a higher multiple That's with right. all the revenue. That's right. So it's, it's angles. It's, it's, it's strategy. WealthCon is coming to Hollywood. If you've ever been to any of my events, you know they're life-changing. We get the best speakers. We have the best venues. We have the best parties, after parties, and networking that you could imagine. I've met so many people who ended up becoming business partners of mine at my events. I've made great relationships, and the people who have attended have done the same. And so I want to see you at my next one in Hollywood, California, April 4th to the 6th. It's going to be absolutely incredible. We've got speakers like Chris Crone, Lewis House. We got Roe built from Bigger Pockets. The list goes on and on. We have a huge lineup of speakers, and I want you to be there. So if you want to attend the event and learn more, go to wealthcon.org. Once again, you can go to wealthcon.org and go learn more about the event and register today. Hey, if you're looking to grow your real estate investing business, whether you're just getting started trying to get your first deal or you're trying to scale and get to the next level, you need to join us at Wealthy Investor. We've got events every single quarter that are absolutely crazy. We've got online coaching programs where we have Zoom calls, a community every single week. We give you everything you need to know to start your business, scripts, processes, SOPs, all of it. It's for you so that you can dominate. So if you wanna learn more about how to join our community and be mentored by me and some of our top coaches and be around other students who are absolutely crushing it, Go to WealthyInvestor.com, apply for a free call with my team. Once again, WealthyInvestor.com, apply for a call today. So what what levels do you start to see different multiples? Like, let's just, we'll use a tax company, for yep. example. Okay, you know, let's say a tax company's making a million bucks revenue. And then okay. what's the difference between that and 10 million? And then 50 million, like, yeah. how so, does it change? Yeah, so I like to look at companies versus uh, multiples of revenue, multiples of EBITDA. Okay. So it's it's potato, potato. The revenue is going to be lower. EBITDA is going to be higher. Yep. Um, so I live in the EBITDA world. Um, so, you know, you, you, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million, and then above, and you're in different areas. Now, where that varies is with franchise. Franchise multiples are through the roof. Franchise multiples are can go as high as 25 to 35. Mm. It's absolutely insanity. Now, it takes more time to get that because you're only pulling 6 7% from each one, but you get a much higher multiple. Right. Um, so you're 1 million, just talking very generically because you know uh, niche does matter whether you're in fintech or technology. Yeah. But just generally speaking, you're in the probably three range, uh, let's say two to four in that 1 million. Okay. Um, of EBITDA. Of EBITDA, yep. Um, three million, you're probably three to five. Uh, when you get to five million, you're probably six to uh, six, I would say. Five and a half to six and a half. And then when you get above 10 million, sky's the limit. Then it really does matter. Who's the buyer? What are you doing? But you could be above 10 for sure. And if it's if it's a technology company, you could be 20. Mm. Right now, in my opinion, technology is getting the highest multiples. Maybe that's always been historically true, I think. Right. Yeah. So if you were buying companies today, Mm -hmm. what industry would you be targeting, you know, if you're going to like go build a buy box? I know you're open to everything, right? Would you just target companies that you have expertise in? Or would you just pick tech? Like, you're starting yeah, to I don't target fund. companies that I have expertise in because I'm really good at surrounding myself by people that are experts in what we do. Um, 
But I'm going pretty deep and wide on AI. I don't know if that's an exact yep. answer. So I am, I'm a visionary. I'm a dreamer. I love to come up with big ideas, but I am not the guy that can pull that together. So what we're doing, in fact, uh, with my uh, head of media over here is we're trying and I'm looking, desperately looking for people that can actually execute on concept, bring them on, give meaningful uh, equity and build out some of these big ideas using, um, you know, the AI platform, the open form. I mean, it's it's absolutely, in my opinion, I was too young to catch the the, in, the internet, but I actually think this is bigger than that. Yeah. What do you think about blockchain? Yeah, I've been in and around that as well. Um, one of my good friends actually owns a really large, uh, meaningful company in that space. I that is the one of the company, one of the kind of uh, markets that I don't feel I have enough information to get deep into it. So I'll push some cash into it and kind of I'm learning the space, right? Um, but I'm, I'm not meaningfully involved in anything in, in blockchain. Yourself? Mm. Yeah, I have my NFT project. Oh, I know Tikes. about the NFT. That's right. Yep, and so. You know, one of the things with Tykes is, you know, we're starting a fund within it mm-hmm. where people are going to be able to invest in businesses with me, which is why I'm asking these questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if anyone's part of Tykes, you know, you can get an idea of how we're thinking about yeah. things. But uh, so basically the way I see my business investing is two ways. So one is, hey, if we're going to operate, it needs to be in our core competencies of yep. real estate or education. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things we're really good at. So I'm cool buying, buying, you know, uh, an appraisal company, an inspection company, uh, you know, tech platform for real sure. estate, like whatever, right? And then with education, anything to do with education, we can digitize it. We can sure. help with the marketing, the sales, all that, right? So those I'm down to operate. But then we have all these other companies that are being brought to us with blockchain, AI, tech. Everything. Right. And I'm like, look, I I have an idea of what to do, right. but I don't have full resources to devote right. to this. And so from those ones, it's like, all right, well, let's put those people through, as you would call it, you know, the, the management system. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, let's get in with them and put them through our systems and sure. make sure they're doing what they got to do. But at the end of the day, we're pretty passive on this. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm just looking at it back to the old school way of venture capital, thinking of like, look, nine out of 10 of these companies ain't going to work out Yep. just because the tech is so new and they're not. For sure. You know, so it's like, we're just taking bets on founders and everything else. Yeah, I agree with that. I think in technology, that's almost the best you can hope with new technology. Right. For sure. And you just don't go too deep that it would hurt you. Right. Yeah. Okay. But for me, to kind of piggyback that though, if I'm investing anything, my expectation is to win. I, I don't, yeah. I, I don't, and I'm sure you do too. And that's why I want to be in the AI space. I have no value to add other than <laughs> big, big picture ideas. So I'm going to build a team that I can rely on to actually b- both teach me and deliver on my vision. What do you see so fascinating about AI? Oh man, what, what, what isn't fascinating about it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm in ChatGP every single day. It's, I mean, look, it, it, su- it makes me superhuman. It makes everybody superhuman. No matter what level you're at, you are now 10 times, 100 times better. And your output is also 10 times or 100 times. Like the, the, I hate to say the word, the minutia, but the stuff that we used to spend, have to spend a ton of time creating now can be done for us in a moment. And now we're just editing and perfecting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's astounding to me. I introduced it to my two children who I'm sure are using it to do their assignments at school, yeah. <laughs> which, you know what? I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, it's just really, I'm not going to miss this wave right? Uh, and it's amazing to me how big it is, how many people are blissfully unaware that it exists or worse, how it can be utilized. Because mm. once you get into it, it's 
It's mind blowing to me. Yeah. Absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, I've been using Chat GPT too, and just like I mean, we're using it for a lot of copywriting mm-hmm. and edits and everything. Yep. But you know, I've tried their photo generators and sure. all that. People in our coaching programs use it to take notes. Like, there's so many uses for it right now. Right now. But I'm just like looking at it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to use this in day-to-day life. Like, this is great. But how do I monetize it as a company or a service? How do I offer AI myself? Yeah. I don't know that you're directly offering AI. You're offering services that already exist that are done by AI. Mm -hmm. I think that's the case for me. For me, it's just a white label opportunity. Yeah. 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 It's like, hey, we'll write your emails for you. We'll, you know. Except that you're not. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, listen, it's a cheat code to some extent. Now, you still have to perform. You still have to execute. You still got to package. still got to sell and deliver. But the bulk of the work is being done for free. Right. I mean, like, listen to that. Say that again. I mean, it's if you if, if everyone out there and it, even if you're not building a company, I believe every company out there can lower their overall expenses by using ChatGPT uh, on some level, mm-hmm. whether it's answering phones or responding or con- anything. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So what's, I mean, what's the next stage for you at this point? I mean, you're still pretty young. How old yeah, are you now? 44. 44. So I don't see you stopping anytime soon. Like what, no. what's the goal? Yeah, what a great question. Um, and I hate saying this because of course it is about money, but it stopped being more, it's less about money now than it is um, legacy. Okay. And, and creating wealth for other people that are, are my partners and friends. Um, I'll never stop working. I love it. I love yep. what I do. I love the hustle. I love the game, which by the way, it is a game. Yeah. Right. If people go wrap their head around the fact that it is everything we do, life, business, it's a game. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it like that, it's easier to try to find those angles. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm going to continue. This is the new iteration for me, right? Me putting myself out there. I've always been the guy that was doing the bulk of the work and the bulk of the vision, but I was always just happy to be behind and, and push everybody out. And I still support that, but I do believe that this next iteration for me is being out front, talking about my beliefs, sharing with young entrepreneurs, and you know, without getting too much into net worth and all that type of stuff, but I have um, the, the big B insight and I believe that the path to me getting there in a meaningful way, not just getting there, which is a big difference, right, is by creating a, a, a line of millionaires behind me. And I think when I get there, it won't just be that I made a billion dollars. It'll be a real legacy of success, not just for me, but everyone that went on that ride with me. And for me, that's with children. That is super important to me. Um, no one's ever going to come to my daughter when I pass and say, God, your father was such a rich man. And they may, but what I want them to say is your father helped me, made me this, did this for me. And so for me, that's what I'm chasing. Right. So, I mean, how do you go about achieving it with purpose? I think the answer to that is by including everyone that you can on that path with you, right? Okay. Uh, and listen, structuring deals to give them upside. Absolutely. And listen, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie here. When I was younger, that was not my MO. I wanted to win. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying at my path, 20 plus years in, I have the luxury to be able to want to share. And so my negotiations are even different now. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would typically go in as a shark and try to eat every morsel on the bone. Now I'm like, you know what? He's a great operator. He's a great founder. He is going to be doing the majority of the work. And I back off on it because why not? 
And I'm not saying that's a great strategy when you're starting out, but you ask specifically what is meaningful to me. And I think that is my path. Mm. I, I'm going to make money no matter what. And if I didn't make money anymore, I'd be okay too. So if I'm going to choose to continue to build wealth, I want to do it with as many um, talented individuals as I can so we can all celebrate together. Mm. So what's the, I guess, uh, the criteria for bringing these people on to you? Like, how are you finding the right kind of people? This is always the hard part. It's, yeah, that's everything. That's the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, How's your recruiting coming in? Like, how are you doing that? So because I've been doing it for a while, before I started this whole social media uh, endeavor, I just had really healthy deal flow because I've had really good relationships. So before social media, I was seeing maybe 20 to 25 meaningful deals a week come across my desk. Now, maybe you choose one that you actually close on, um, but I've been lucky in that sense. I haven't really had to work very hard now for deals, but in the past, I was just out there shaking hands, kissing babies, introducing myself, talking to everybody, mm -hmm. sharing. I was the NM, the ultimate salesperson of 3F Management and Derek Fay. Because, and you know this, no matter what I'm doing, I'm not selling my companies. I'm selling me, my abilities, and my my team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So, I guess for me, like I'm I'm going to be out there selling, mm -hmm. you know, to get deal flow. I guess the thing I struggle with is like capacity, mm -hmm. right? And so we already are constantly hiring for existing companies. And then, you know, having full control of existing companies from start to finish with the branding, everything else, yep. like it makes it much more simple. Yep. I had actually in some partnerships because we didn't have that luxury. And I'm just like, dude, this is not worth my time and That's headache. Right. Like how many deals do you end up just walking away from or you know, I guess not reneging, but just canceling it after because just like, dude, this is not working out. Yeah. Actually, I've given back many companies. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, look, when you first meet, the, a lot of them tell you anything you want to hear. I'm 100% in, I'm completely flexible. We're going to do all these things. And, you know, you get your operating agreement. You don't, I, I don't have to give back that company. Yeah. But sometimes, like you said, it's just more hassle than it's worth. And it just happened to me recently with a, a utility company where the CEO and I, he was a good guy. He just couldn't let go. He's had the company for 35 years. He couldn't let go of the old days. And it was a constant struggle. And he's always arguing with change. And I finally just said, listen, give me back my principal. Now, the company's probably worth 40% more than when I came in. Mm -hmm. But this is how he pays his bills, takes care of his family. He's owned the company for 30 years. So I took back my initial investment, gave him his company back. So to your point, sometimes you just got to walk away. Yeah. It's just not worth the, the struggle. Right. Yeah. But I guess the the hard part for me then is, okay, you, you pick your winners and everything, then you're wanting, wanting to scale. And like I have my C-suite whose job mm -hmm. is to, you know, oversee everything. everything. Right. But then we have each individual company has their own COO and right. everything else. So the C-suite itself already is going to get maxed out for sure from doing that. So I'm like, all right, well, I got to go hire basically a bunch of top level COOs you do. in each category. Like I talked about, you have to, yeah. Now, when, when the portfolio gets that large, right. Right. And so for me, um, let's take uh, QSR. Once I got to say five different assets, no, of those five, some I had three, three locations, some had 10. But once I got to that five number, it's when I had to bring in a direct CEO over the restaurant portion. Right. Below the C-suite team. Because otherwise you just burn your people out. Mm -hmm. It's just not manageable. But our bandwidth should be somewhat unlimited if we build the downline correctly. Correct. Yes. Yeah. As long as you're not having to be the one to meet and, and it, Which is duties. impossible. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's a tough, was a tough transition for me because I have gone dirt to exit so many times. I want to know every person that works for me. I want to, you know, send them my Christmas card. I want to know their family. It's just not possible. Uh, and I struggled with that for a long time. And all you can really do is train your C-suite to train the people underneath you, to train the people underneath you, to act in accordance with the way you want that to be. And then you catch up at Christmas parties and things like that. People just, people, and I say, and I believe this wholeheartedly, I want my people to work happy, not hard. Mm -hmm. Of course, if they work happy, they're working hard. But if you just drive them to work hard, they're very rarely happy. And that's when turnover occurs. Right. So, so, you You got to care about the quality of life. Culture's everything. Yeah. That's right. And that's why it's crazy to me when people are like, oh, I'm not going to pay another dollar an hour. Okay. Now that part, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to hire and fire six people versus just paying someone a couple bucks more and they're happy. Yeah. Like, the mindset is so broken. It's so short term. Yeah. The cost of turnover is significantly higher. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. And it stresses out everyone up and <laughs> down. Right. How, so how big is your company right now? Like as far as the, the management company? So we, we run pretty lean because all of our companies come with human capital. Right. Right. So our C-suite team is only about six people and myself, but right. then we also have heads of each category. And that's the great thing. And you, you nailed it. When we're acquiring companies, they have their, we're, we're acquiring 60 employees. Now, maybe some of those employees aren't perfect where they are, but maybe they're perfect in a different asset. Maybe the CEO is not really clicking in QSR, but guess what? They have a background in fintech. And so there's a really good ability to move people and shift people when, when every time we acquire, we're picking up a lot of really talented people yeah. that just may not, are either underutilized or just not in the right spot or they're stagnant. Mm-hmm. And so if you teach your people to, to really get to know your people, it's not just because, of course, we want them to feel respected and valued, but also get to know them because you might find out that, my God, this guy's working at a QSR. He's got a master's degree in engineering. Like, mm. get him over to the other company. Right. Right. That makes sense. So what's you, what's most of your day spent doing then? Nowadays? Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, yeah. a lot of this. Yeah. Um, Marketing. Yeah, no. So I, I am very much, and I say this with pride, I am the big picture guy, right? So I am the one that, so my team will vet deals. Hey, we think this is worth looking at. Um, and of course, they just give me the numbers. And then if the numbers make sense to me and I see where I think that can go, uh, I look at the concept, meet the owner, and then I provide, here's where, here's where I, here's the weaknesses that I see. Here are the strengths that I see. This is where I want us to be in three years. I put together just a baseline pro forma of the expectations. Um, and I'm very creative. So I love to be involved in facility design, marketing, all that type of stuff. So in my opinion, I'm involved in all the fun stuff. I am. I was an exceptional operator, but I did it because I had to, not because I loved it. And that is, I think, the biggest thing for, for entrepreneurs. Do what you love. And that's not always a luxury that you can do. But if you can align yourself with doing what you love and find a strategic partner to do the other part, that's where the magic happens. Mm. So yeah, you're working on... that's. That sounds very much like me. I mean, I spend a lot of time on social media, which is marketing. And 100%. then I focus on the branding of the company and, mm-hmm. you know, all the copy and the yeah. funnels and right. well, all because it's your stuff. name. What yeah. goes out there is you right? and me. Well, and it's also like the thing that needs to be set properly for everything else to work. That's it's right. like the first catalyst. That's right. So in the business versus on the business is a huge thing. And I think successful entrepreneurs like yourself, like myself, and so many others figure that out. And it's a hard transition at first, at least it was for me, where I'm building these companies in the ground up. I want to do everything. And I actually had my COO who came to me one day and was like, 
D, you're you're great at what you do, but I am too. And I wouldn't let him do anything. <laughs> I would I was doing everything for him. I'm paying like $150,000 a year and I'm I'm overstepping him, I'm micromanaging him. And when he first said it to me, I almost felt assaulted, but it's because I knew what I was doing was wrong. And then when I let go of that, it changed everything for me in business. Things exploded very quickly. And so that's my go-to. I hire really talented people arguably smarter than me in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. I show them my process and then I let them run. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So what do you think um, is the main thing, like a young entrepreneur is listening to this right now, mm-hmm. right? And they're saying, well, dang, dude, maybe I should start buying companies or doing venture capital or whatever, right? And they're, they're running through all these different things. And they're like, well, you know, Derek does real estate. He also does this, he does that. How how would you tell these guys to start mm. so that they don't get confused too? Because there's like a lot of paths to go on. Yeah, I think that's the biggest, if there is a downfall to social media, it's that you only see uh, the success story. What, what we're not talking about is how many times I fell on my face, how long it took to get me to where I am. And so I would say, you know, you start stacking your abilities and start stacking your strengths. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit different in the sense that a lot of people will say, pick one thing that you really are passionate about and focus just on that. And I don't disagree with that, but I also believe that you can learn any, the majority of any one skill in a very short period of time. Like I'm gonna go back to Hermosi because he said it very beautifully. You can learn the majority or 85% of a skill in what, 20 hours, right? And so for me, I always looked at it as I wanted to know a lot a lot about a lot or a little about a lot rather right versus just be locked in on this one thing and mm-hmm. so that served me really well i put myself in situations i learned about everything i dropped out of college after 60 days <laughs> so you know, i was making real money at like 18 years old i was making you know mid six figures but i went to college because i wanted to see what i didn't know uh and for me it just was the professor was saying things that were just so contrary to what i knew to be correct so i got out of there and I went on the self-education path. So I think that's where it starts. And I'm not saying the college isn't right. My belief system says, if you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, that really requires it, um, I don't know that it's uh, needed to be a true entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of statistics that speak to that. Um, so I think getting in the game, learning on the fly is really the best way to go about it. Uh, and don't be afraid that you don't have an exact plan of where you're going other than self-improvement and learning skills and being around successful people. Yeah. That's the biggest thing I always say is like people want everything just like planned out to a T. Like, hey, give me the SOP and I need to know yeah. what my year one through year five is going to look <laughs> exactly. like. And I'm like, bro, dude. Yeah. Tomorrow depends on today. Yeah. I also don't even know what three months is going to look like. Exactly. We, we could totally pivot. We could have a whole new product. Right. We could realize like this doesn't work. This does. Yep. And it's like, I have a general idea of where I want to go. That's it. Like I want this to be successful and I'm just going to like basically pivot the way there. Right. And it seems so simple to you and me because that's how we're wired. But I think that is paralyzing to so many people. But if they could just change that mindset, it's so freeing. And like you said, I have a general idea where I want to go with this, but I know for a fact the next six months is going to change 25 times. Yeah. And as it should. And if you're not willing to adapt and move, you're never going to make it because nothing is straight line. Literally nothing is straight line. Mm-mm. Yeah. My motto is ABC, always be changing. 100%. It's not closing. That's right. That's right. It's I agree just, with that. I like that. I might take that. Actually. Yeah. yeah. You have to change all the time. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah, and reinventing just, yourself. Sometimes you just complete reinventation, uh, uh, reinvent yourself completely. How do you think you've reinvented yourself over the years? Oof. Um, 
I mean, let's go backwards. Like this for me is a complete reinvention of myself. I was 100% against, not against, but I, I didn't participate in social media a year ago. I mean, I was on loosely, you know, Facebook or this. And then, but I am a student of the game. And I started listening to guys like yourself or Hermosi. And I'm like, you know, some of this stuff is making a lot of sense. Uh, and I'm not taking anything away from these celebrities that are having billion dollar exits, but I am a stronger entrepreneur and businessman than any of them. They have their skills far better than mine. And so um, reinventing myself from the corporate guy that I was, buttoned up, CEO, mm-hmm. never never swear, never, you know, very, yeah. uh, to doing this was a huge reinvent, uh, reinvent, I said reinvent myself. Um, and for the first three months, I woke up every morning thinking, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing I'm this I'm embarrassing now? myself. I'm going to ruin my reputation. Yeah. I'm a fool. But- positive mindset, talking to yourself. And now things are on a really interesting trajectory. I'm meeting a lot of great people, building relationships, partnerships would have never occurred before. So luckily I- You're already seeing fruit. uh, Orchids, orchids of fruit. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, And again, I love meeting people, but I think if people could understand, I think it's important to hear how stressed out I was about it, how much concerned I was, that doesn't go away. It's the ability to compartmentalize it and know that the decision you made is right. And it's going to, it's going to be hard at times, but Mm -hmm. pushing through that is the only way to get to the good stuff. Right. 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 No, a thousand percent. I, uh, I've had to constantly reinvent myself over the years, you know, as a guy who was just a hustler, solopreneur to a guy who started to learn how to be like a manager and a Mm -hmm. true business owner, hire people, hold them accountable to a guy who then had to go jump back into the sales game to make sure everything was good, you know, go generate revenue. Then to a guy who's like now a marketer on social media. And, you know, and I I don't know what the next five years looks like to, to the point of like, you know, I believe in the social media thing and it's great, but maybe five years from now, I won't be doing it anymore. Like, I don't know. You never know. Right? right. Like there, there's lots of paths that can, that That's can happen. Right. Um, but I just think that so many people want, they, they, they like already want to know the end game. That's right. And and we don't know the end game. No, you have no idea. No idea. And then there's some beauty in that because it allows you the flexibility. You know, one of the things that, so you you know you're putting in all this effort in social media. I am as well. And one of the problems I see, well I see two problems, okay? You have one who's the person who's not done anything yet. Yes. And so they're like, well what would I talk about? blah right. blah blah. You know, I don't have money to get started right. and you know, hire crews and stuff. Okay? That they have an issue. And that issue is easy to solve. It's like, well, bro, then just all you need your iPhone, turn your phone. Yeah, you can do it, right? That's right. You have you have time, you have nothing going on. Yep. You have no excuse. And just be transparent about what you've done. Yep. You don't need to act like a big shot when you're not. That's right. But the the bigger problem is the guys like you who already have successful businesses and companies who don't need to go on social right. media because it, it's been successful without it. That's right. And so I see this with a lot of my real estate investor friends because they're like, Ryan, why should I get on social media? I'm already doing this and this and this. And I'm like, because I'm telling you, right. it's way bigger and way, way better than bigger. what you do. And this is how you get to the next level. That's right. And, you know, so they'll be like, all right, I'll try it. So they go try it for a month. And they're like, dude, this wasn't worth my time. Yeah. Spent all this money. I lost money because I could have been right. focused on making money over here. Right. And, you know, they quit because yeah. it's not worth their time. Well, they think it's not worth their time. Right. Right. And so I'm a guy that once I make a decision, I'm committed all the way. I'm either going to be a massive success or I'm going to burn it to the ground. And so I'm zero or a hundred. There's no in between for me. And so the first podcast I did, I think had like three views. 
Yeah. And I thought it was the great pod, the greatest podcast <laughs> in the world, right? Yeah. And so that's nine months ago. And then the last podcast I did, a reel alone had two and a half million. Mm. So there, there, it takes time. And so you have to commit to it. But to your point, I think this is without a debt. We've already talked about the levels of success that I've had in the business deals that I've done. In, in the past six months through social media, I have seen more meaningful high-end deal flow than I have ever in the past 20 years. 1,000%. Okay. And you know, when you want to start raising capital. Very easy. Way easier. Way easier. Deal flow, capital, recruiting, yep. employees. Connections, partnerships. Yep. Relationships. 100%. Yeah. yeah, I get people who walk through this office every week. People are like, dude, is that so-and-so? Right. And I'll be like, yeah. Yeah. yeah they're coming to see me. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> that's right. Like, it's crazy. Just because. Just attention. Because. That's right. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's crazy what a, what a 30 or 60 second reel can do. I mean, it is to great. me, to me, you may, you may be used to it for you, yeah. but it's insane to me. Now, there's some criticism too. There's always good with the bad, for sure. Yeah. Uh, reels can be misleading. Um, but listen, that's, you know, that, that's the game that we're playing. Right. Yep. Yep. Nope. I'm with you, dude. All you entrepreneurs, get on social media. Absolutely. That's why we have Wealthy Creator. Go check it out. But uh, Derek, dude, it's been great meeting you, man. Yeah, I my appreciate pleasure. you coming through. Absolutely. I'm excited to, to learn from you as we go down this journey of yeah. VC and... M&A and, and all that stuff, bro. So yeah. I'm excited to see what we can do together, man. I think that would be wonderful. I'm in Vegas now twice a month. Okay. Yeah. So we'll do something for sure. Yeah. We'll yeah. make it happen. Sounds good. All right, guys, make sure you go follow Derek and we will catch you on the next one. Peace. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Thanks for making it to the end. The good news is I've got another one that I know you're going to like, and all you got to do is click it right here, linking it right here. All you got to do is just click it and you're going to see this new episode that you're going to love.